Welcome to Dominating Your Investments, a podcast where you'll learn about stocks, personal finance, and creating generational wealth. I'm your host, Dom Rinaldi. We have a special interview for you today. We have the CEO and founder of Seven Investing, Simon Erickson. Welcome, Simon. Dom, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I am so excited about this interview and just I've followed you on Twitter. I've, you know, part, I listened to your guys' services and uh, a lot of former uh, analysts from other companies too that work with you. So it's kind of been like a long journey of just seeing how you guys have grown. Uh, wanted to go through some questions that I know the audience would be interested in and just learning about your history, how you got here to this point, and also what Seven Investing is focused on around investing and different industries and kind of how you guys view the the market today. Yeah, perfect. Where would you like to start? Should we start from the beginning? I like yeah. walking to the beach, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love to just understand how this all got started for you, uh, because I know it didn't just start out right out of college for investing. Walk us through your journey to now, you know, from out of college to, to now and, and how you got to become a founder and CEO of an investing firm. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. You know, investing is such a personal journey, right? So each of us has got a different story, which kind of changes the perspective of how you think of the markets and how you want to be an investor. Uh, for me personally, I, got, I came out of college as a chemical engineer. You know, I did some, some time to pay through college and a chlorine gas production block. And uh, as you can believe- <laughs> A little different swatting, than investing. <laughs> oh, swatting mosquitoes in the Texas heat. It was, it was fantastic. But I mean, like everybody there was working really hard and, uh, you know, they all, all, all wanted to save for their families and college and everything else that we all want to. And just kind of makes you appreciate, you know, how hard work can translate into your future returns and how important it was to, to start investing and not even just putting it into the bank and, you know, CDs and short-term investments, but the stock market as a long-term compounder of wealth. And so my journey was uh, after engineering, I went into a technical sales role, as I know you're already very familiar with as well, Dom, you know, traveling <laughs> around so. the country and uh, that courtyard Marriott rooms, it felt like my room, <laughs> yes. you know, four, four nights of the week. And Get your points. Of, exactly. <laughs> oh, those were the best part, you know. But um, it was it was always looked at. It was always looking at what is new. I, I was a special chemical specialty chemical sales rep. Always looking. Every customer wanted to say, "Hey, if we develop this, we can differentiate ourselves from competitors. We have higher margins. We want to do something new. Whether that was organic agriculture, whether that was deep sea deep water drilling. I mean, it was a whole bunch of different things. But we saw a lot of common ground." And that kind of influenced me, right, to go back and um, get an MBA in entrepreneurship, worked for a large oil company in their M&A group and VC group, kind of strategy and planning and business planning and things like that. Uh, following a stint doing that went and worked for The Motley Fool, uh, where it was not internal to the company and building out those programs, but kind of looking at things externally as an investor and saying, okay, where are the, where are the best opportunities that I want to put my money into? And how can we size up how those companies are doing? And then in March 2020, my favorite part of the story is, <laughs> uh, is founding Seven Investing, where I, I put together just an absolute incredible team of stock pickers. And we provide a diverse buffet of options, seven top stock recommendations in the market every single month. And we're learning a lot from each other and we're really having a lot of fun. Now, I'm curious because I know my background when, with my family, we didn't talk about investing. It was it was something that I didn't realize till later on in life. 
uh, to get involved in. It, did your parents talk about personal finance with you or was that all new when you got to college? All new. Uh, I, I don't share a whole lot of this, but I'll tell you that I was born in rural Iowa. Uh, okay. I had a dad who worked in fertilizer plants and, uh, you know, kind of was a real operational kind of guy. Uh, ch- challenged us to save. Always said, hey, save your sure. money, but certainly no exposure to the stock market or individual equities or anything like that. I think it starts with a mindset. You just got to want to think long term and see mm-hmm. where do you want your future to go? And then kind of along the way, what steps can you take to get there? Having that patience, right? Being able to, I think we live in a world of instant gratification. We want our money now and hit the lotto. Um, sometimes you can get lucky, I guess, if you're willing to, to do trades like that. But uh, the safer bet that's shown that we've seen in the industry, just like the, the little stock arrows that we have on both of our backgrounds here, up and to the right, if you're willing to hold for a long term. Um, so can we, you walk our viewers through your investing approach and strategy for seven investing to really, how do you sift through the entire market to find the winners that end up, end up being your stock picks for, for that week or month? Yeah, I think that like the, uh, the buzz line for this, uh, Dom would be maybe the, the hockey puck investor, right? The, the Wayne Gretzky investor. We might mm-hmm. owe Wayne some royalties if we say that, but, uh, it's the whole of, I'm a big believer in where's the market going. And yeah. that sounds a lot easier than it really is. But what it really means is I spend my time looking at a lot of things differently than a lot of institutional investors do. And by that, what I mean is we've got an obsession in the current investment world on quarterly results, right? How much attention is being paid to did a company hit or miss its current quarterly expectations? And the reason for that is we've got so many inputs that are inputting into uh, discounted cash flow analysis, spreadsheets that have 54 tabs at the bottom of them, that at the end of the day just spits out a price target that an institutional sell-side analyst is saying, this is what this stock is worth. And we've got millions of people uh, following the buy or sell based on the price targets, which are very, very tied to short-term factors like quarterly earnings. I'm looking at a completely different set of data, which is two, three, five years out. What is the market not appreciating that's a really big deal that's going to create a ton of value for an equity investor? And to me, that's why one of the things we always stress at 7investing is think longer term. Time is on your side and you have to look at things that the rest of the market is not looking at. 90% of the stock market's trading today is being done algorithmically. There are robots and algorithms that are trading stocks back and forth all the time. And we have zero advantage in doing that. We will lose every single time if a bot that has more data that's doing trying to get interday trading, uh, we're not going to win that game. What we can do is kind of look at a lot more subjective things and really kind of use those in our own computers that we have uh, in our own brains and, and, and analyze kind of where we see things happening. And if you invest early, my my strategy is invest early into the innovators of tomorrow's future. And that is going to create the the true compounding and really, really make the big impacts to your portfolio are going to pay off over time. Yeah, and I think that also there's things that machines can't quantify or qualify, right? And we talk about those founder-led leaders, um, the Jensen Wongs of our time, the Alex Carves, the people that are changing how we do life, right? How we're doing this meeting right now on Zoom. Um, thanks, Eric Yuan. Um, so yeah. 
I think there's things that you have to also look at for that, because I think when you're investing in stocks, you're really also investing in people. Uh, that's a big component that I don't think a machine can put on. Um, but we also know that the market's unpredictable, right? So with what you're saying you guys are doing, you're willing to hold through volatility. And I think that's that's so important for for new investors to understand. The um, decision-making is incredibly valuable. You said Jensen Huang at NVIDIA, and I mean, he has really positioned his company to take advantage of opportunities that NVIDIA wasn't even, nobody thought NVIDIA was doing that 10 or 15 years ago. They were a, you know, a graphics card maker for PCs. And then you see him position it for the data center and kind of focusing on the efficiency, uh, power efficiency of, of everything that's going on behind the scenes. Stuff like that is is definitely, as you mentioned, uh, not quantifiable for algorithms. And I think that it's incredibly important because a lot of times in the short term, those decisions are kind of rudely dismissed. If you remember several years ago, it was 2012, that Jeff Bezos was, was rudely dismissed for his $775 million acquisition of Kiva Robots, Kiva Robotics, right? The cute little robots that he said were going to redefine the warehouse and logistics infrastructure of Amazon. And people were saying, Jeff, you have completely overpaid for this. This is a, a completely overvalued company. It's just a technology. They really don't have any kind of commercial scale that you're looking for. And he says, just wait, be patient with me. I have a vision with this. And now when you see that Kiva has been deployed in, in basically all of Amazon's North America warehouses globally now to the scale that he envisioned it, uh, it's saving tens of billions of operational cost dollars every year on an acquisition that costs $775 million. And I mean, examples like that, like you said, they're not quantifiable by an algorithm. They're very difficult because they're subjective. But when you kind of look at a past track record of a leader and you see the vision of where they want to go and you hold them accountable for how they're spending your capital as a shareholder, that's a really good combination. I think a big point that you hit on is doing your own due diligence. We talk about here on Pounding the Table, do your own DD. You can't borrow my conviction. You can learn from it. You can gamble with it if you choose. But at the end of the day, what's going to hold you through your volatility through those moments when a company goes 50% down, which Amazon had moments of that ever even greater, is your confidence in what they're achieving and is your thesis broken or is everything still intact and the market's overreacting? Um, so I think that's awesome that you guys are folks on, as we say, as Gretzky put out there, where that puck is going, not where it's at today. Um, and I think the puck's moving very fast, right? So you have to think imaginative um, and, and not just limit yourself to what's out there today. Um, so with being a chemical engineer and working in strategy for MA uh, and all these different experiences, would you say that's attributed to you becoming a more well-rounded investor or what would you say your experiences have helped you with investing? Yeah, I think that a lot of it is, you know, the, the calculating and the formulas and the quantitative aspect of it certainly applies. But I think probably the, the biggest takeaway from all of that is that scale is really important. And if you're talking amongst engineers, what that means is something that a chemist is looking at in the lab that is working fine when you're in an R&D environment, yeah. you have to realize you're going to be bringing this to global operations. Right? If you're looking at catalysts that, that are extremely toxic, but in a lab setting, you've got you know, the, the coats and everything like that to control them. You've got to think twice if you're going to unleash something like that on production. Uh, and just also some things that seem really neat when you've got them extremely controlled 
are very, very difficult, right? It's a Jurassic Park, right? They, they controlled the raptors when they were small, but then they, they <laughs> overrun the park. It's the same idea. Uh, investing is the same way because markets have got a lot of innovators. Uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are, that are quite honestly trying to change the world. They're trying to go out there and get as much attention and the best people and do uh, make a ton of money for their very small businesses. But the true reality is it's very, very difficult uh, for more than a couple of years to maintain outsized growth rates. The Walmart stories, the Netflix stories, the Amazon stories, they are the Tesla stories. Those are um, the subject of business cases and business schools that are being taught because they're so rare and because leadership is such an important component, but also they adapt. They understand yeah. the market better than anybody else out there. And that keeps winning them share. And over time, that's what we call disruptive innovation. They displace the incumbents uh, who are focused more on taking care of protecting their cash flows and their margins and their, their revenues. Um, that is what, what I mean when I say, you know, the hockey puck investor, the innovative market changing investments. I mean, they take time and they take patience, but they also take a lot of flexibility. And um, it's, it's an interesting balance. It's very subjective and uh, it keeps it interesting to say the least. Yeah. And, and to that exact point, these leaders are willing to fail. And I don't think that's normally in our DNA to, to be okay with failure, right? We live in a culture that always is measuring you. And I remember Bezos saying, if you think this, this uh, Amazon phone is going to be my worst failure, you're sorely dismissed because we are going to keep failing to further innovation. Um, and you really have to have a vision uh, great talent around you to, to endure that, um, but also be able to own when you make a mistake. You know, you look at Eric Yuan with the security issue and how they were able to handle millions of people using their product. I can guarantee you that was not on the roadmap uh, of being ready to do that, right? Um, so great point on that. And so now this is more of a selfish question for me, and I'm sure there's other investors in my, my uh, boat here. As a dad, as a husband, CEO and founder, uh, how do you find or when do you find time to do your due diligence in that research that we love as stock pickers? I mean, I mean, here's the answer right there for you. Though. <laughs> I mean, continual flow of coffee. Well, we're, we're drinking it. Okay. <laughs> the caffeine rolling. I mean, you and I both know as parents, you know, it, it's very difficult to focus uh, when you've got... Your, your loved children banging on the door saying, hey, daddy, I need attention. That's very important, of course, in our family yes. to, to spend time with them, too. Um, I get my best work done in the late evenings, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. We have a, new, a one of our advisors is based in Sydney, Australia, which is 15 hours time difference from he and yeah. I. Yeah. And uh, a couple of months after he joined, you know, he, we have Slack and we'll communicate with each other on. And he sends me a message late morning for him, middle of the evening for me. And he says, man, Simon, do you ever sleep? <laughs> are, are you ever sleeping up there? But I, I, I do feel that if you're investing uh, and you really want to do the research, you've kind of got to go through those 90 minute rhythms where you just uninterrupt, uninterrupted and you're focused. Um, it's really hard to just kind of pick apart a headline and look at a couple of numbers and make a informed decision. You've got to get into the nitty gritty in the trenches. And however you find the time to do that, uh, whether it's stepping away from work for a couple hours during the day or, or late at night, as I, as I prefer to do things, or a little bit of both, um, 
we're kind of blessed at seven investing for the most part, we are all doing this full time, which gives us a really diverse team that, that's really able to, to dig into all this. It's certainly a challenge to your point though. Yeah. And this, I'm going a little off script here because I want to peel back the onion a little further on this. Um, what type of resources do you like to leverage for researching a company? You know, uh, for myself, I'm, I'm very cons- uh, not concerned, but maybe uh, interested in what that CEO is saying, how they're saying it, do I believe it, and watching numerous videos, old and new, to see how that vision has changed. Are they consistent with their messaging? Uh, and then, of course, looking at the products that they're delivering, the TAM and what they're going after and, and leveraging their website. They really do need to advertise for themselves. But I would be curious how you kind of start that process and, and what you look at. Yeah, Dom. Well, hey, man, we're going off script. So here's my off script answer, though, is that it's kind of three layers, right? You've got kind of the surface layer of the numbers that are out there that everybody else is looking at, right? Go on Twitter. And, and when Apple releases earnings, you're going to have <laughs> millions of people who are saying, hey, look, they burnt, beat earnings per share. And oh, look at revenue and look how well the, re- the recent iPhone did, right? There's this surface level stuff that everybody is looking at. And it's exactly yeah. the same data advantage we all have. Second layer is is kind of the insight that you get from that. Uh, rather than just looking at earnings per share, say, okay, operationally, what is Apple doing? And maybe we don't use Apple because Apple is such a big organization, but think about a small company that's really focused on accomplishing two or three things. And what are they doing? Are they, are they putting the right people in place for new programs they have? Are they putting a lot of money into R&D that's going to churn something out? Um, are they buying back shares if they're a little larger of an organization, reducing your share count? What's the next layer that you can dig into that's above just what, you know, investor relations teams are putting out there? So that's the why then, right? That's the why. That's the investing thesis. That's the why am I investing in this company? And then I think that there's also a third layer of context, which, which we've done quite well in our team, which is just being familiar over time with the things that you look at knowledge compounds. And if you specialize in a certain market, you're going to kind of learn who the competitors are. You're going to kind of learn which way the wind blows. You're going to kind of learn what the technologies are. I mean, you kind of have a better better understanding the more time you spend on something. And so our approach is we've got some people that are really looking at clinical trial data, right? If you told me to go out and look at clinical trial data for FDA trials for a new drug, I would, I would, try to hold my own, but there's no way I would really be able to do that as well as somebody I'm right like there Max. with you. <laughs> and we've got Max Chatsko and Dana Robinson on our team that, you know, they do that. They really look at that and they can understand, hey, here's something that's a fundamental breakthrough that is not being appreciated by the market. Anirba Mahanti, you know, background PhD in computer science, same thing. He's looking at artificial intelligence saying, hey, here's some algorithms. This is why Tesla's doing its self-driving cars differently than anybody else is using computer vision versus LIDAR out there. I mean, things like that, I think they play a factor too, uh, because the more time you dedicate to a field, the better you will understand it. And that goes for investing as well. And I don't know if you agree with this, but I would say because there's so many stocks for those analysts to cover on TV and all the media outlets, or even just the time it takes, a lot of people don't take that time to really peel back. They'll look at those headlines and that's what they'll report on what they see. Whereas what we're doing is we're looking at the why, the how, what is fundamentally going to change with this company, which I think is so, it's like you're solving a mystery. Um, It is a lot of fun. 
uh, and helps oh, for long-term really well too, by the way. You and I chatted about Palantir not too long ago, and you're doing a fantastic job. And it's really been enjoyable hearing your same passion for for killing back the uh, the first and second and third. Yeah, round. I was gonna say, I have like eight videos and more to load. I just <laughs> I just love. There's so much you can talk about of where they they could be skating to with that hockey puck. Um, but thank you for that. Um, so. Looking at the technology sectors and where our world's headed and, and the digital transformation that's been accelerated through COVID-19, I think maybe we even knew it was going to happen as far as digital transformation, but not this fast. Um, what are the characteristics that, you know, or sectors that you're most interested in? It's, it, there's a, man, that's a. It's a loaded three, question, I know. Three beer conversation. I mean, that's when we got a or three bourbon conversation. We can talk yes. about that. For we yes, yes. <laughs> Our choice of drink is definitely bourbon. I mean, I think that kind of the world is shifting to the cloud, and we know that, and the world mm. is shifting to AI, and we know that. But like, we really haven't seen AI deployed in a consumer-facing way yet. We've seen AI. It's it's been on the, the spam filters that Gmail has sure. used for for decades, right? And we're starting to see some businesses being saying, okay, how do we use machine learning to actually train and then use inference uh, based on huge data sets that we've had. But it really is still uh, a mystery, I would say, for, for most people. Um, even most businesses don't know how or, they, or, or understand how they should be mm-hmm. using AI. But I, I just kind of think that in, in my kind of opinion, the consumer is where the real money on this is going to be the real interesting piece, right? And what do I mean by this? I mean, how many things during the day are, are you spent that, that may or may not be called a hassle? You know, whether it's, you know, uh, trying to figure out how, what insurance you should have for your home or your, for your healthcare insurance, booking doctor's appointments and making sure that they take your medical insurance that you have, you know, uh, scheduling things, you know, calendar work, stuff that, that a lot of this could be offloaded if you just had something that understood the context of what you're asking for and understand exactly the behind the curtain, all the data that you have. Um, Alexa's trying to do this. Amazon mm-hmm. is trying to do this with the digital assistant in your home, but we're still mostly using it for what's the weather today? Uh, can you play? <laughs> Read Led me Zeppelin? a bedtime story is what <laughs> I do with my kids. Story. <laughs> you know, what's the stock price of my favorite company? Yeah. But if you could use a, a natural language processing uh, coupled with machine learning, coupled with kind of understanding um, in a semantic search fashion, where it's not just keywords, but you're actually understanding the context of what you're asking. Something like that for the consumer is is huge. And we've got to address privacy and we've got to address big tech monopolies and all the other things that are out there. But something like that, that could simplify our lives, which are getting more and more complex as there's more and more options and more and more data out there. I think that's a multiple trillion dollar opportunity for the company that cracks it. And that's why I invest in NVIDIA and Palantir. Just two of my favorites. Exactly. <laughs> um, because data place. is growing. Yeah. You know, AI it, is, is computationally heavy, right? And GPUs and all the, you know, the custom silicon that you're seeing, the processors that big tech companies are developing. That's why they're doing that. Well, and we've seen, I actually just did a tweet last night around smart cities and where, you know, where we're starting to see them in other countries. I can only imagine when they fully roll out here in the U.S. of, um, I think when I, when I think of AI, I think of making life easier, right? I think from a consumer perspective of convenience, you know, I'm waiting for the AI robot that can fold my laundry and hang it up. That's right. <laughs> right. But uh, for enterprise, there's so much use case too. I heard on an interview with the commercial lead in Palantir of, 
Uh, 90% of data goes unused within an organization or unaware of um, or not used, most utilized as it should be. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to your point uh, with data. So this is a fun question because I have not had the opportunity to, actually, you're my first. You're my first CEO. This is awesome. This is perfect. Uh, So what is the most memorable moment for you or interview with a CEO, an inventor, or, or someone of that nature that you were just, you learned a lot or had a really just memorable experience from? Oh man, there's a lot of good, good answers. To yeah, this. there's a lot. And you don't want to, you don't want to knock anyone off the list, but just maybe you don't even have to say it's the most memorable, but just one that sticks out to you that was like, wow, I got to do that. Yeah. Well, maybe just to give some name drops first. I mean, I think that Worley at Strange Works up in Austin, Texas, who's working on quantum computing, is doing some fascinating work right now, which is misunderstood and undervalued by the market. Uh, chatting with him is always really, really not only fun and, and interesting, but really entertaining too. Uh, Peter Beck is the CEO of Rocket Lab. Just chatted with him a couple of weeks ago for Seven Investing, and he is trying to uh, disrupt space launches where small businesses can, can send stuff up into orbit. Um, economically, where that was mm-hmm. not even possible before. Um, but I guess I'm going to go, I'm going to kind of pull out a left field answer for you here, Dom. I, I, let's sure. go with the one that, that that nobody has probably heard of, or at least maybe very few people listening to this have heard of this, um, which is John Euler, who is the CEO and founder of a company called, called Beijing. Uh, have you ever heard of Beijing before? I haven't. I haven't. Okay, right. So I, I, it's kind of a, not a lot of headlines, not a lot of fanfare, but Really smart guy, engineer out of MIT, and John, American, you know, from Baltimore, hardworking guy, uh, interesting resume as he self-describes it. And he says, hey, we're doing all this really neat work with genetics right now. We are understanding DNA uh, and, and how medicine really should be personalized. And you can make custom drugs based on uh, the d- g- genetic composition of not only cancerous tumors, but also the patient and how they'll react to certain things. And he says, but the field of medicine, at least that he was seeing, is so westernized. You know, mm-hmm. Most of the clinical trials are using patients that are white men in America. And he says, but the world's most populous country is China. And it's yeah. going to be prohibitive to fly everybody from China over to the U.S. for these trials. So he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to go set up shop and start a, start a company that's going to do personalized medicines for cancer drug development in China from scratch. Wow, and, uh, you know he he just it's fascinating how he did this, how he pulled together the best doctors in the country and understood all the diseases that were different in China than they were in the u s. Uh, he partnered with all the large academic institutions that had really cutting edge research going into the fundamental science that was going into this thing, and then he had a, a millions of patients, tens tens of millions of patients that were immediately really grateful that he was bringing novel and innovative medicines to their country when they had no options before for some of the most serious conditions. And now you look at Beijing, you know, it's um, last I checked, I think a $20 billion market cap company. I've lost track of it now, but to see that I talked to John years ago when it was still, still getting off the ground and seeing his vision and what he wanted to do, you know, he wanted to be the Genentech of China, right? He wanted to build DNA based medicine, personalized medicines for a country that had no access to that. And now you see even, you know, China's insurance networks starting to figure out how to reimburse for these things and, and the growth rates of things that are built in China now being used for the rest of the world because he set the bar so high from the beginning. 
Um, man, that one still gives me chills just hearing about how he was doing that and how he thought about his business. It was really That's fascinating. awesome. Like what I love about that story is he identified a problem and identified how something could be done better and is not looked at, uh, but is also contrarian and having to be bold and, and get out of your comfort zone uh, and taking the Western bubble hat that we wear sometimes being exposed to only here uh, and starting a business and, and looking at a, a grander problem to solve um, from a different lens. That's awesome. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with our audience. Um, so I know what mine is here. Uh, what is your biggest investing mistake that you've made? Oh man. So, I mean, let's, let's stay talking about China, right? Cause that was a huge success when he did, but I had, I, I got way too excited. I think about a decade ago of these China microcap companies that, that were just showing two to 300% year over year growth rates. And um, I, I just, I, I presumed that that was sustainable. And in reality, as everybody is probably figuring I'm about to say, there were landmines all over the place and uh, disclosures were certainly not up to par as the SEC was putting on, on U.S. listed companies. And a lot of those companies got delisted, you know, from, from the U.S. exchanges. And uh, amazingly, I didn't lose all my money. I still don't know how I didn't, but it was it was poor practices as an investor. I was thinking way too short term and placing way too large bets on things that had way too many risks. And I, I kind of look back on that and say that was that was a huge mistake. So for me, just to share with the audience on mine, I think some have seen it on Twitter. Uh, uh, how actually, I, I guess I got to be thankful for this mistake, though, is that how I started individual investing was seeing a lot of media press on the cannabis boom uh, back in 20, end of 2018, early 2019, and, and these crazy returns um, that I thought would be life changing if this is real, if this is happening. And even though I did a lot of due diligence and research and learning, I still was so new to the market and didn't understand the fundamentals of some of the basic things around investing, like share dilution and how important that is to understand that. And the motivation when you look at the rewards the CEO gets in a proxy statement, um, learned a lot of hard lessons, didn't sell any shares. Hopefully those will one day go back and, and some will be winners uh, other than losers but lost a significant amount. Luckily, the other side of the coin was half of my investments I went into was my actual area of expertise I felt comfortable on, which was tech. Um, and so that's probably maybe a, a advice, not advice, but say a recommendation of a learned experience. If you have an area of expertise, maybe start there and doing your homework before investing because you might know a little more there. Um, so if you could only list three investing role models, who would you say have been most influential in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to I've got to be thankful for David Gardner at the Motley Fool. You know, he was my boss for seven years and uh, kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. He's uh, hung up his stock picking hat here recently to focus he on has. other cool things. Uh, but I know that he's very proud of everything that we're doing at Seven Investing. So uh, thank you to him uh, for helping me in my journey as well. Um, others, I, I think that probably as an investor, I'm really, really amazed by Clayton Christensen's research. He is the father of disruptive innovation. Uh, he wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, which kind of changed how the enterprise thinks about things. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, for those that are unfamiliar, just to kind of walk through his research and what disruption means is we always like to focus on the big companies that keep getting bigger and they keep getting higher and higher margins. And, you know, they beat their quarterly earnings per share and oh, everybody's happy because they're sitting on piles of money like Scrooge McDuck used to, you know, the vault with all the coins. (laughs) But at some point, you know, all of those margin dollars that they've captured are, are open to a smaller company to do something differently. They can't beat them at their own game, but what if they tweaked the way that the market thought about certain things and did it completely differently? Um, could could they topple the giants? You know, is it is it possible decades ago that IBM one day is not the world's largest company? Is mm-hmm. it possible decades ago that Exxon is not the largest market cap in the S and P? Is it possible years ago that GE is not the world's most valuable company? And you see that those at the top they do get toppled. They do have smaller companies that, that think about things completely differently in ways that they can't because they don't want to give up those cash flows and margins and dollars. And I, I think that all of that research has been very influential for how I think about investing. It takes a lot more uh, late nights with coffee when the kids are asleep, <laughs> but it, it really, that's where you, when you talk about 10 baggers and you know the companies yeah. that can return you 10 times your money, you're going to find them in those kinds of pools. That's awesome. Um, and I have to re-listen to that. I like audible so I can get multiple things done. Um, but I have, have, uh, listened to that book, but it's always one you can, you know, read every year, once a year. Uh, another one that I love is the psychology of money with Morgan Housel, a good friend of yours. Uh, I think one of the best writers and views on money, uh, that's out there. Um, so do you believe we're living in an age of technology investing where larger market cap companies, specifically tech, can still achieve hyper growth long term? I mean, that's the right question. That that is an incredible, I mean, there's so many layers to that question of the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. So the largest constituents are contributing outsize performance to it. Um, And you look at Dom, I mean, the the biggest tech companies have just continued to roll. Right? What is it? Laissez, laissez Lombon, Tom Roulet, let the good times roll. I mean, you look yeah. at both Apple and Microsoft, are, which are the two largest market caps um, in America, have been five baggers in five years. Yeah. Let that sink in. The largest yeah. companies in America have, have, are now five times the value that they were five years ago for investors. And that's amazing, first of all, but I, I, I kind of, this might be a contrary opinion to what a lot of other people think, but I don't, I don't think that we're going to see anywhere near that in the next five years. Um, America doesn't want it. It wants to regulate mm-hmm. its big tech companies. We're already talking about consumer privacy. Uh, we're throwing around the M word, monopoly, yeah. you know, and uh, we're already seeing, has, Facebook's already been in the crosshairs of this. It has been for years Amazon's going to be the next one. Google's already getting fined by the EU a couple billion dollars every year, uh, which is nothing for Google, but that's a lot of money and that might increase. Um, So I think that the next couple trillions of dollars to add to those market caps are much more challenging because there is a limit to kind of how big these companies, at least from a regulator perspective, they want them to actually become. No, I think that's very well said. 
for me, I think there's a, a threshold of where, okay, how, how fast can they multi-bag, right? And then that's where you really need to know thyself. And what am I, what's my ultimate goal? When am I actually going to touch this money? When am I going to use this? Or uh, maybe if it's just passed on to my kids, then okay, it's, it's fine to, to uh, sit longer. But I think that like that, that one to two trillion dollar mark, it, it really then starts getting harder to to start really growing fast. And to your point, it gets on the regular regulators' um, watch radar. You know, uh, I do think Nvidia is definitely going to get to two trillion dollars. Just in my opinion, this is not financial advice, buy or sell. But one of the things and why I ask this question is because I think technology is changing how we've looked at investing historically. Right. To your point, moving to the where the puck is going, you can't look at where it's been. And I think that investing we are seeing and we're living in a world where retail investors want to do research. They want to understand their investments and and invest in a better future. And I think this new uh, push that we're seeing for that, I think, will push companies to continue to grow Um so that sweet spot is that, you know, once you're over like 500 billion, you know, you may get a four or five bagger, but it'll take a while. And it, only the best of the best. I think people uh, sometimes forget that there's there's only so many Jensen Wongs and Jeff Bezos. And, and uh, those are special stories. So you're, you're always looking for who's that next investor you can have that kind of conviction and, and uh, faith in. Yeah. And, and Don, can we go off script a little bit and just kind, yeah. of, kind of talk about this some more just to kind of show you kind of yeah. how I think about kind of things like this, but largest company in, in American market cap is Apple. What is Apple's cash cow and it's bread and butter right now? I believe, and I could be wrong because I don't follow them too well, is the earbuds. Uh, I would say the earbuds and probably the watch, but more of the earbuds, I would think. Yeah, sure. Like it, components that support yeah. the iPhone, right? Like yeah, the, the services. iPhone, Exactly. But you think about it, I mean, people have said we've reached peak smartphone. There mm-hmm. has certainly been a plateau globally of the iPhone and the unit sales every year. And on top of that, we just saw Apple say, hey, it's not going to increase the price of its mm-hmm. next high-end iPhone. It's going to eat the margins. Chips are getting more expensive, Dom. You and I both yep. know this. Uh, so what is Apple going to do if it's not increasing the prices? It's going to eat those margins. And so that's a huge risk. Is Apple yes. going to continue its trajectory that has brought it uh, into the age it is maybe uh, Microsoft. What is Microsoft's cash cow every year? Yeah. So Excel, right? It's yeah. Enterprise, you know? Yeah. It, and now they've really taken the big bet and they said, we're going to make Windows 11 as a service. Mm-hmm. So now we got reoccurring revenue on an operating system. I don't know how well that's going to go over with everyone. Um but then again, we didn't think Adobe, we, everyone was laughing at Adobe when they did that and, and look at Adobe now. Yeah. And, and not to mention the Alteryxes of the world. They're saying, hey, let us free you from Excel jail and give you your time back that you've devoted all those decades to Excel. Yes. I mean, the enterprise is changing how it thinks about the time of its well-paid data scientists. And then like the third largest company, Alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like d- digital advertising, you know, the internet is free because of advertising placed everywhere, but how many times have we heard com- consumer privacy mentioned in the mm-hmm. last several weeks? And you know, just even oh, yeah. advertising as a whole, people don't like these walled gardens anymore. Mm-hmm. And so Alphabet is, is trying to figure out through other bets, where, where's its next, its next cash cow going to be? 
if it can't rely on things. I mean, the only reason I bring these up is those are the three largest companies, like we said, five baggers in five years, but there's some really, really fundamental changes that are happening to their yes. markets. Yes, I think you hit on a good point of regulators don't want to see that, that monopoly growth. Um, and I think what's also great is that we get to invest in smaller companies that want to go after the giants. You know, you look at a UI path who's looking at leading an RPA and, and making life easier. How many times in your job, I know in mine, where you have repetitive tasks and you're like, boy, I just love to automate this and click one button or something, or somehow make this faster so I can get to my next task. Um, and so there's so many innovative leaders that see problems. I think that's one of the things I look for when I invest in a CEO is I want someone who identifies a problem addresses how severe and large the TAM is and then goes out and solves it. And you look at Toby Lukey at Shopify. I can't buy a snowboard effectively on e-commerce. I'll just do it myself. And and now look at what him and Harley have built there. Um, It's it's special when people are willing to go. Or Eric Yuan, he told Cisco, hey, we can do this better. We can do this better and and goes off and starts Zoom. So I think that's so exciting, the the times we're living in. Absolutely. I completely agree. 100%. So kind of concluding for, because uh, I could talk to you all day about stocks and what we both love so much. Um, part two, Dom. Part two. Yes. Hey, I, I am always game for a part two. Um, we could maybe even do like a, a stocks uh, from scratch type of uh, situation. We look at a new company. You got um, it. What investing advice would you have for those beginner investors who are young and who are starting out and just nervous, right? I talked to so many of my friends and, and they just don't know where to start, but also it's just, it's scary, right? To be trusting and putting your money that it'll grow. Yeah, it is. And it's just an educational thing that's going to take time, right? You're not going to come in day one and be an expert expert uh, investor, right? Just like the first day of dental school, you're not going to know how to do every dental procedure that there is out there. Right. But you can compound your knowledge over time. It, it, it's no excuse to say, oh, I don't know how to do it today, so I shouldn't start. I mean, make today your day one where you go out and you start learning about a company. Watch this interview and maybe think about some of the things that, that Dom and I have chatted about and just say, okay, if I'm looking at this company and their earnings numbers, what's really important if this business is going to maintain a sustain long term? Uh, you know, or if you start looking through a, an annual report and they start disclosing things for you. I mean, there's always an opportunity to learn more about these things. And I would encourage everybody who's new to investing is don't be intimidated. Nobody starts as a great investor. Everybody makes mistakes. We just talked about some of our mistakes on this podcast. I challenge there to be anybody that is doing this for a living to say that they've never made a big mistake, uh, which every, all of us have. And make, make small mistakes maybe as a good piece of advice too. Don't go back the truck up on day one. Uh, know that you know, I can attest time, to that. <laughs> you'll hone your process. Knowledge compounds, um, but but also write down why you're buying companies when you buy them. It's more work. It's more effort than just pulling the trigger. But you will, your future self will thank you for having a thesis and saying, "Okay, I'm buying this because of this." And that way, if you're right, you're like, "Oh, great, I found the right thing." But if you're wrong, you can also look back and say, "Oh, hey." That's an interesting data point. That didn't work. Maybe I should think about that and, and avoid that in the, in the next situation too. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I actually just did a tweet last night. I thought it would be fun to share with the FinTwit community. Here are my Roth IRA uh, stock positions because I have multiple accounts and 
This is what I was thinking day one when I bought it. <laughs> some were right, some were wrong, but it's nice to reflect back and just be like, wow, okay, I've grown since then. Um, but some of them, those thesis are right and they're even expanding on that even further. Um, now on the flip side, what about a, an older, closer, let's say 10 to 15 years of re- close to retirement um, standpoint, would you say it's it's still you're still able to succeed in investing, um, but maybe have to take a little more conservative approach. Sure. Yeah. And again, back kind of full circle to what we talked about in the very beginning of the interview is investing is personal. Mm-hmm. But I, what, another way to say that is there's no right or wrong way to be an investor. There's just advantages and disadvantages to each one of those approaches. And if you want to shoot for the moon and invest in the quantum computing companies and the AI machine learning companies and the personalized medicine companies, I mean, that's, that's stuff that's a lot of fun and can be 10 baggers, but there's a lot of risks, right? Let's, let's be honest that we don't know what quantum computing is going to look like five years from now. I don't think I know what it's going to look like five weeks from now. <laughs> there's a lot of things that are changing in those markets. And then there's another style of investing, which is, which is a personal decision too. It's just as right as, as any other style, which is saying, hey, I really like getting dividend checks every quarter. I really love having those cover my mortgage and paying for my expenses. And if I don't want to put my money in a bank account that's paying me piddling interest rates right now, um, maybe I can go put some of it into conservative companies in the stock market. And if you're that type of investor, you're really interested in competitive advantages and sustainability. So you don't have to be up at night worrying about if you're going to get a dividend check or if that company is going to, going to go bankrupt the next week. And, uh, you mentioned the Roth IRA. I mean, that's a great strategy for a, a long-term investor that just wants to collect dividends, reinvest them, and rinse and repeat, right? I mean, that's a perfectly fantastic investing strategy as well. Best best investing vehicle that I think our country has given us, right? Uh, to not have taxes at the end when you're ready to actually enjoy your fruits of your labor. Um, and I, I really love how you said investing is personal. That's what we strive for. You're talking about uh, pounding the table. We in, in this network of uh, specialists, we have people who trade. We have others that are long-term investors. We have others that are in NFTs and crypto. Um, you have to find out what makes you passionate, what you're willing to put the time into DD and actually dive into and spend the hard work. Like you said, those late hours and coffee, uh, so that you can benefit from that. And I think you should know yourself and figure out what your goals are and then align that to what's personal to you. So uh, I just think that's so beautifully said is investing is personal and so much on FinTwit. It's a great community. There's so many people to help each other out. But at the same time, I think there's also instances where people are not excited about someone not liking their stock or why wouldn't you put this in your top five? Uh, But it is a personal choice. Um, for everybody, but we can all win. And it's definitely a great market to create generational wealth. Absolutely. So I just want to say thank you for joining us today. We definitely will line up a part two folks. You heard it here. Um, So Simon, thank you for joining us. uh, And we look forward to speaking with you soon. Oh, I had a lot of fun. Thanks very much for having me, Dom. Thanks, sir. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that interview as much as I did doing it. Simon's Twitter handle is at 7innovator, and I encourage you to give him a follow to get more of his investing content. Now for the disclaimer. 
Dominating Your Investments is a podcast that is part of the Pounding the Table Network and is for entertainment and educational purposes only. This should not be taken as financial advice and is just that of my opinion on investing. If you found that informational helpful and entertaining in today's interview, you can also give me a follow at DominicRinaldi9. Thank you again for listening, and remember, it's never too late to start dominating your investments.